Well, kia ora. It is, um, it's good to be back. Um, the last two weeks, um, I wasn't preaching. We had other people preaching, which was nice. A couple weeks ago, we had Peter Foster, um, from, uh, who runs, he's like the regional leader for the Baptists of the Bay of Plenty, and it was awesome to have him here uh, taking us through Matthew as he talked about Jesus on the, on the ship with the storms, and now he has authority over even the winds and the waves of chaos there. And then last week we had Brooke with us, and um, it was just lovely as she took us through this passage, really confronting passage about Jesus encountering these two demon-possessed men and, and having to navigate that and pigs, and it's, it's crazy. So it's, it's a joy to be back with you again. And we're going to be continuing our series on Matthew. We're just walking through, again, I've loved preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been lovely to have a rhythm where it's like every week I'm just going to sit down and learn from Jesus again. Sometimes you can make things really complicated about like theology and life. There's nothing quite the same as just sitting down to try and follow Jesus a little bit each week. And so it's what I'm loving so much about this series. So if you have your Bibles with us, we are going to be in Matthew. We've made it up to chapter 9. We're tearing through at a snail's pace. Um, We started Matthew about a year ago now, I think. Yeah, coming up on a year ago now. One year, nine chapters. We're doing good. We'll finish Matthew in like six years. It'll be fine, right? It'll be fine. But we had the Sermon on the Mount. You can't rush through the Sermon on the Mount, can you? You got to take your time. Anyway, same with today. Sorry, so we are in Matthew uh, chapter 9. We're at verses 1 through 8. So let's read that out here. So Jesus stepped, out, stepped into the boat. And he crossed back over the lake and came into his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. So then the man got up, and he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who'd given such authority to man. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to you again, and as we hear this story, we simply pray that you would speak to us. Jesus, we want to follow you more faithfully. We want to be closer to you. We want to be more like you. And so we we ask that your spirit would speak in a way that we might hear. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, in the Gospel of Matthew, pretty famous story, right? How many of you are familiar with the story, have heard the story in some shape or form? Yeah, there you go, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand. And it can be easy to come at this with a lot of familiarity, but there's something really interesting about this story in Matthew. Now, can I be a Bible nerd for a second? Thank you. Did someone say no? (laughs) No, you can't be a Bible nerd. Well, tough luck, I am. Um, In the Gospels, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are three Gospels that are very similar to each other. Matthew, 
Mark, and Luke are very similar. There's a technical word for this called the the synoptic gospels. And I remember when I was doing theological college and I used that word for the first time, I felt so much cooler than all of you, just (laughs) full scale. But now you could use it with other people, the synoptic gospels. And one of the features of the synoptic gospels is that they have a lot of material in common. Now, what most Bible scholars think is that most people assume, and we're not sure, but we're pretty sure that Matthew is probably the most early of the gospels. And what happened is that Matthew and Luke, both of them probably took Mark as their basis and used that as their blueprint to add their own stories onto. So it's why you get a lot of similar material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because both Matthew and Luke use Mark a lot as their foundation. But there's something really interesting about when each author uses Mark, they tweak it slightly. They shift what Mark told. And one of the things you'll notice that in this story, Matthew radically changes the way that Mark told the story. Now, when Mark tells the story, there's normally some other elements to it that aren't in Matthew. Does anyone remember what those elements are missing? Paralyzed man bought by his friends. What wasn't in the Gospel of Matthew? The roof. That whole section. In fact, take a look at this. You don't have to read it. This is the whole story in Mark. Everything in red is what Matthew has eliminated from the story. He's taken out all of like that story of the friends who come forward to try and teach, uh, try and get to Jesus. It takes out the section about getting through the roof. It takes on extra words that the Pharisees say. It takes out the full view of the crowd. Like this whole section is massively shrunken down in Matthew's story, which makes it really interesting to preach this passage. If I were preaching to you this passage on Mark, I'd probably want to talk to you about a sermon about the importance of community, the importance of how we need friends to carry us to God when we can't carry ourselves. Maybe, maybe it'd be a great sermon about perseverance, about pushing through to Jesus even when it's hard. But Matthew's not concerned about that. Matthew shrinks it down massively because he's trying to make a point. And does anyone know, can anyone imagine what the point is? Because he's taken out all the stuff about friends. And there's one phrase in Matthew's gospel that sticks out as like the key story for the key reason for this whole story. Does anyone know? What do you think, Bruce? He's the Messiah. Yep. Close. There's a specific thing that Matthew's trying to say. It's in verse, if anyone has their Bibles, what do you think? Verse six. Does anyone know what verse six says? I told you I'm Bible nerding. You're going to have to go with me for a morning. All right. It happens every once in a while. In verse six, it says this. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And it's this key word of authority. It shows up all the time through the Gospel of Matthew. What is the one thing that the, the crowd says when Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount? After he teaches, everyone was amazed with the authority that he teaches with. Here in this verse, it's the first clash that we have between Jesus and the religious leaders. And that first clash comes into a clash about authority. Later on in chapter 21, there's a huge confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And that clash is centered around the question of authority. And what's the very last thing that the Gospel of Matthew finishes on? It's a very famous verse that most evangelicals will tell themselves all the time. Matthew 28, 19. Does anyone know it? All authority has been given on heaven and earth has been given unto me. So therefore, go and make disciples. 
So Matthew has been leaving these breadcrumbs throughout the whole time, and Matthew has shrunk Mark's story massively because he wants to talk to us about the authority of Jesus. Now, that is a tricky sermon topic in 2022 New Zealand. How many people, when you hear the word, for me at least, when you hear the word authority figure, how many of you would be like, that's a good person, right? We don't love authority in our context, do we, anymore? Particularly in New Zealand, we're very egalitarian. No one should have authority over anyone. Everybody should just be able to do what they do. And particularly, the West has been on a journey of moving authority and has been a huge question of authority. And so I want to take a moment to talk about how do we grapple with this in our cultural moment? Because it's really hard to read this verse when it's talking to us about authority when we read it in 21st century New Zealand where our ideas about authority are very, very different. Does that make sense? we're very likely to miss what's happening because what we think authority means is different probably from what Matthew and Jesus is wanting authority to mean in this passage. Now, we don't like authority. Every teenager dislikes authority. And again, in the Western context, I don't have time to go through this in total. There's a fantastic podcast. If you want to know about big sociological changes in the West and how our ideas of God and authority and right and wrong have shifted, Take a photo of that podcast, and if you're a driver and a listener, it's phenomenal. You could, there you go, I see that photo, I see that photo, I see that photo. You take a photo of it, it's, it's incredible. But long story short, it's hard for us to read this passage about authority, because really, since the 1500s, our culture in the West has been moving authority. In the 1500s, if someone talked about the ultimate authority in the world, everyone would have assumed that was God, and the way that you knew authority from God was either probably through the king or your pastor, trusted people that would minister power over you. But things have shifted rapidly in 500 years, haven't they? Where no longer, particularly in a secular New Zealand context, do we think of God as an authority figure anymore, do we? It used to be the nation state. The nation state used to be the ultimate authority, but since the 60s, even that has shrunk down massively. In fact, it's been really interesting. Um, with the war in Ukraine happening, there was an, a fascinating op-ed that was written in the Sydney Herald, where it was this young writer who is, she's a young millennial, she likes coffee and avocado on toast, like all of us do, right? And um, she's writing this article shocked at what's happening in Ukraine, not just by the war and the violence, but she was shocked that people would give their lives towards something greater than themselves. She was like, she asked the question genuinely, in the West we are so enamored with ourselves, of our own journey, our own development, what's right for me, what, what I want to be, what I want to go to. She genuinely asked the question of whether if a war came to our place, would we lay down our lives for something greater than ourselves? Super interesting. Because for the majority of us here in New Zealand, what's the greatest authority of our time? It's certainly not the government anymore, is it? <laughs> I mean, COVID showed that. It was, as soon as someone told us what to do, we imploded as a nation, right? What's the ultimate authority in our context? Ourselves. I am the ultimate authority in my life. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to live my life. You can't tell me where I should go or what I should talk or what I should do. If you try to put anything on me that I haven't chosen, that is oppressive. 
and I need to push down any power structure that's holding something over me. That's the culture that we live in. That's the air that we breathe. And if you don't think that, I can guarantee you, your kids probably do. Even if it's not intentionally your thought, this is the water that we swim in. We assume that the ultimate authority is ourselves. And so when if that is our view, the question that the scripture wants us to ask is, in the world, who has authority? And if they have authority, what does that person have authority over? And then Matthew would finish with asking us, of what does that mean for you? So we're going to try and answer those questions. Lock those into your brain as we walk through this passage and see if you can answer those. Because if we are able to grapple with this and own it, it is genuinely life-changing. But it is also phenomenally difficult at times. So those are our questions. All right, let's walk into the passage, talking about authority. Matthew 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus stepped into the boat, and he crossed over, and he came to his own town. Where did he come from? He left from the other side of the sea, which was like Gentile territory, and he's come back home to Capernaum, the place where in Matthew he does the majority of his ministry. Now some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So Matthew wants us to be thinking about authority and what example does he use to tease out this question of authority? Sickness, right? Now sickness is complicated, particularly when it comes to the connection of sin and sickness and how do those interact? Does anyone else struggle with that question? Depending on what faith tradition in this room, you probably wrestle or land on a different side of that tradition. Is sin always connected with sickness, or are they separate? Are they completely different things and one doesn't interact with the other? This was a huge question at the time of Jesus. And for most of the Bible, there's a strong connection between the idea of sin and sickness. In fact, often the word for salvation, saying that person believed and was saved, that word is also used in the same way to say that person was healed. Salvation can mean both healing and salvation. It was intimately connected, and there are stories throughout Scripture about how sin and sickness are connected. Like there's one story in Numbers, which nobody reads because it's the Old Testament and it's complicated, right? But there's this story in Numbers where Moses is leading the people out of Exodus, and his sister Miriam starts to challenge him, starts to badmouth him, starts to gossip, and starts to just sow seeds of discontent in the people. And in that story in Numbers, God calls her and a few others before the tent of meeting and calls her out for her sin. And once her sin is kind of exposed, she immediately gains a skin disease, a form of leprosy. That's weird, isn't it? A connection right there between sin and sickness. Another really famous passage, Psalm 32, which is a great psalm about repentance and coming back to God and apologizing and, and, and being reconciled to God. In Psalm 32, the psalmist talks about, like, I haven't confessed. I've not said my sin, and now my body is physically wasting away. I, I can't walk. I can't eat. I can't drink. I can't move. My body is failing because I have not been able to confess my sin to the Lord. And so in lots of scripture, those are really strongly connected. And at Jesus' time, it was almost assumed that they were exactly the same. 
that if, you've, if you're sick, if you are demon-possessed, if something has happened to you, that is 100% because either you've done something wrong or your parents have done something wrong. But here's the tension. Once Jesus shows up, he, he pushes against that. And there's stories of scripture that talk about how it's not that straightforward, right? Does anyone know the book of Job? The book of Job is a whole story about how Job goes through pain and suffering and sickness and difficulty. And the whole point of Job is saying, you can't draw a direct connection between sin and sickness. Somehow God can still do something in the midst of that. And there's a really famous story where Jesus interacts with someone who was sick. Does anyone know it? There's a story in John chapter 9 where they find someone who's blind. And the disciples turn to Jesus and they ask him, hey, Jesus, did this man sin or, or did his father's sin that he's ended up in such a sad, poor, pitiable state? His disciples are great, aren't they? And Jesus, again, pushes back against that. And he says, neither. In fact, he says, you're probably asking the wrong question. You're asking why did this happen, not what can God do through it. But this man will receive God's mercy and that will glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus goes and he heals them. And so there's this fascinating moment as we talk about authority and who's Jesus and where does his authority lie, it comes into this tension of sin and sickness. And depending on your faith tradition, how you interact with that will be different. Some of us from a very charismatic tradition will very much think that all sickness needs to be healed immediately and if you just pray hard enough, it will go away. Well, some of us maybe from more reformed traditions will say, well, God's not so much about healing anymore. It's more just about your inner life, about God just wants to help you in your inside, but don't worry about the healing stuff, that'll come later. Does anyone resonate with that? Have you heard, have you had those debates? Had those discussions? The reason why Matthew uses this is because it touches on something very, very important. Matthew is using this story of both sin and sickness together because he's trying to ask this question of when Jesus comes to minister and have authority, how does he use that authority to the people who are most broken by it, who are abused by the system? So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. All right, now, honest moment. How many of you would have been a little bit disappointed if this was the first thing that Jesus said to you and you're the paralytic? No, a few of you are like, no, I just care about my sins so deeply. And a few of you are like, yeah, that's a, it's a reasonable question to ask, right? He's obviously been brought in for healing, but Jesus leads with, son, your sins are forgiven. Why do you think he says that? Instead of healing him like he healed the leper or the, paral- or the uh, centurion's son? At the beginning, it says there, take heart, son. And if you go into the Greek, that language is so tender. It's like, don't be afraid. Son, it's like an intimate language for your, your actual son, a familial relationship. So he's like, don't be scared, little one. And he says to him, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now I reckon for someone who's lived with that connection of sin and sickness being tied together completely, he's probably spent his whole life knowing that God is probably angry with him, right? Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and his friends and everybody else would have told him, look, either you've sinned or your family sinned, that's why you've ended up this way. 
You're never going to make it to the temple. You probably can't get into the temple because no one will carry you. And imagine living a whole life knowing that you are on the outside of God's love. You're on the outside of God's community. You're on the outside of everything that God is doing. We can focus on the physical healing, but I think Jesus saw into the very condition of that man and said what he needed to hear most first, which was, son, there's no animosity between God and you. You are loved. You are forgiven. Here's the good authority of Jesus, where most of us don't like authority because we assume someone's going to rule it with power and oppress us and break us. How does Jesus use authority? He ministers to the parts of us that most deeply need help first. And he reaches out with deep, utter, transforming love. Son, your sins are forgiven. God loves you. Now, that doesn't go over well, right? At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow's blaspheming. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap, right? I grew up in church. I always just assume they're the bad guys. But stop being a good Christian for a second and put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes. It's not unreasonable, is it? I mean, we get uncomfortable when pastors and preachers get up and say, thus saith the Lord, you will have money, right? We are like, oh, that makes me feel gross. Jesus flippin' said, your sins are forgiven. Now, you don't understand how culturally crazy this was, because we think sins are forgiven. We normally pray in a closet and say, God, forgive me for this bad thing I did. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I feel better. That's not how it was back then. Sin wasn't just a personal thing you did in the closet. If you needed to repent of sin, say you're up in Capernaum, which is up in the north of Israel, and you stole a donkey. That's bad. You don't steal livestock from other people. And you've sinned. And now you need to go and fix that sin. You need to make that right. Do you know what you need to do at Jesus' time? Well, you need to get ready for a three-day hike. You've got to go from Capernaum, and you've got to make your way down to Jerusalem to the temple. And once you get to the temple, you got to get to all the money lenders and exchangers, you know, the, Jesus, the thing that Jesus got angry about, because you're not going to bring a donkey or like a sheep or something down from Capernaum to sacrifice, because that's too much hassle. I mean, we can't show up to church on time. Can you imagine dragging a sheep three days to get there? Like, that's just not going to happen. We're humans, right? So you're not going to do that. So you have to get down to the temple, and then you've got to pay exorbitant fees and change money to temple money. And then once you have temple money, you have to buy the appropriate sacrifice. You've got to carry the sacrifice with you on like a lead in the temple. And then you've got to wait, because there's a whole bunch of other people who also stole donkeys that also need to say sorry for Jesus. So then you're standing in the temple waiting to get in to the inner, inner sanctum, Right? You have to wait there for everybody else. And then you finally get to the door. Once you finally get to the door, the priest, who normally at the beginning of their day would be wearing white, beautiful clothes, you get there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that priest is covered in blood. Why? Because he's done a whole bunch of sacrifices for, for all the other donkey stealers. And then you got to go in there, and the priest, literally, you have to give a confession. The priest will kill the animal in front of you, drain the blood, put it onto the altar, and then, boom, he will say to you, the priest, at that point, after doing all that, he will say, your sins are forgiven. That's what they were used to. And then Jesus bypasses that entire process in one second. 
If you are not, if you're a Pharisee, of course you're going to be like, who is this guy? Right? Let's be honest. Everyone would be like, who gets to act on authority that way? Bypass this entire structure and system to say your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus can obviously, he's aware of what they're thinking. And so he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Which one, which one of those is easier to say? It's way easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because no one can like ratify that. Any crazy person, I mean, you've had crazy people shout at you that you're condemned or your sins are forgiven, right? But Jesus has drawn this all out because he's wanting to make a point here. Which is easier to say? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, now, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up, and he went home. If you thought he was crazy or a poser or an insane person, you couldn't say that anymore, could you? What I love about what Matthew's done is he's showing us something about the authority of Jesus. Where often they might have been like, oh, Jesus is just spiritual. He's just trying to deal with your emotions or stuff. Or Jesus is just trying to deal with your physical stuff and don't worry about your emotions. Just get healed and then come back to church next Sunday and you'll be fine. What this text is showing is that Jesus has the authority to do something that no one else could do except for God, which is Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority to fix the human condition, to fix us not as half parts or little parts or, or some elements of us. Jesus has the ultimate authority to transform you into what you need to be. He can give you the word that you need to hear that restores you into connection and love with God. He can heal your body and your soul. He restores you into community. Go home, go back to your family and to your community. Jesus is doing what no one else could do. He has the ultimate authority. He knows and he can make everything right. Now, I know, I get it, we're at church and you guys are Christians and you're like, yay, that's good, we love Jesus. But I think the Bible's more honest than we are sometimes. Because what did the crowd do when they saw this happen? When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. Now that sentence, filled with awe, it's that same feeling of when the shepherds encountered the angels when Jesus was born. It's that same feeling of awe of being confronted with something that is so huge and terrifying that you actually don't know what to do. You could almost as easily translate this to they were filled with fear because being confronted with that kind of authority changes everything. It means you can't play games anymore. It means that the way the Pharisees thought they were leading their communities all had to change. It meant that someone had shown up that actually can change things in a way when most of us like to just keep things running small, calm and smooth. Jesus has actually shown up and can make everything different. And that can be terrifying. But they praised God then, who had given such authority to man. 
In one sense, it's not a complicated passage, is it? Jesus has authority. But if you're going to try and grapple with what that means, particularly in our context, it is a life-changing message. See, for us, who's the ultimate authority in our culture and our time? Ourselves, right? And that comes true when you've faced with pressure or things that you need to fix or problems that you face, how quick we all feel the responsibilities on our shoulders to fix it. And even if you're a part of church, the danger is that we see Jesus not as the authority figure in our lives, but we see Jesus as a wonderful addition to our culture. We see Jesus as a wonderful pick-me-up on a Sunday. We see Jesus as a set of morals and values that we hope our kids will follow one day. We see Jesus as the, just the culture that we like to be a part of, but Jesus is not any of these peripheral things. Matthew says Jesus is the authority. Now that's hard, isn't it? The question is, who has ultimate authority? Well, Jesus does, right? And what does he have authority over? He has authority over the sum total of everything. Everything that's been leading up to it. Chapter eight, Jesus goes out on a storm. The winds and the waves are about to overcome the boat, but with a word, Jesus does what? Calms it. And the disciples say, who is it that this man that the winds and the waves listen to him? He goes out to a foreign country, to a place where Israel has no power. He's confronted by demons and terror. And then with the word, they listen to him. They, fly into, they fled into the pigs and they run off the hill. Jesus has power over the powers of chaos and demons in other cultures. And now at the very heart of our problems where sin and sickness intermingle, where we are paralyzed, afraid, scared, can't get forward, can't move forward, we feel irreconciled from God, we feel separate from another, here yet again Jesus comes and with a word brings life. Jesus is the ultimate authority figure. And he has authority over everything. Now, what does that mean for you? If you're anything like me, and Leighton, do you guys wanna come up? We'll look at finishing up here. If you're anything like me, it's so easy for Jesus to become an addition to your life. And then when a real crisis comes, our first port of call is not necessarily him, but other people. Say you're, you're going through and you're having some huge health scares, some huge health challenges, and you're like, ah, this is really difficult. What's the first port of call? Yeah, I mean, I can like get someone to pray or read scripture, but actually, I need to go talk to a doctor. I need to get there first. And that's not wrong. Or say you're having relational problems. You're having difficulties with your kids, and you're struggling to navigate that journey with them, and you're like, yeah, 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 you know, faith is important, and I'll, I'll pray about it, but... Flip, I need to go talk to a counselor or a trained psychologist for help me with my kids. Again, it's not inherently wrong. So you're having relationship problems in your, uh, in your marriage with your partner, with your spouse. You're struggling to get through this and you don't know how to fix it and you keep on hitting walls and then you're like, yeah, yeah, no, Jesus is important. I'll go to church and I'll pray on Sunday, but I really need to go read this one book. Now that's not bad. But it shows that often, particularly in a modern Western context, 
Do we really believe that Jesus has the authority to bring change in our lives? I think sometimes we don't. Sometimes I think we assume that we are still the ultimate authority and if anything's gonna change, we have to do it for ourselves. But Matthew would bring to us a word of hope and a word of life. That Jesus genuinely does have the power and the ability to turn your life around. That Jesus genuinely has the ability and the knowledge to change your family and turn them around. That Jesus genuinely has the knowledge and the authority to work in your job, in your career, as you navigate this with your kids or your family, that Jesus genuinely has something to offer, not because he's a great, nice addition, but because he genuinely has the authority to change things in a way that no one else can. Now, that doesn't mean it's overly simplistic, nor does that mean prayer, pray more. We don't wanna fall into the trap with sin and sickness being like, oh, if we just pray, it'll be fixed. Remember, what Jesus might often say to us in these challenges is not necessarily the thing we thought we wanted to hear, but the thing we need to hear. Often when we go to Jesus, we're hoping he'll say one thing, but instead he leads with, take heart, son or daughter. Your sins are forgiven. But I guess I wanna challenge us and challenge you. I don't know what's going on in your life or in your space. I don't know what's going on in your families or your career, but I know that all of us struggle. And I know that all of us are facing challenges. I think the encouragement from Matthew for us today would be, Jesus isn't just some side peripheral cultural item that can help you on a Sunday. Jesus isn't just a collection of wise sayings that you can repeat or verses that you can hold on to. Jesus is alive and he's here. And he has the genuine ability to transform whatever challenge you are working through to take any setback or fallback and transform it into something that brings you life. He can redeem any story. He has authority over any problem or challenge. Is it simplistic? No. Is it a long journey? Absolutely. But time and time again, Jesus has the ability to transform your life. So as the team leads us, I don't know which situation this works for you, but maybe take a moment and there might be a place in your life where actually maybe moving Jesus from a side peripheral thing to an authority figure you could trust who can actually bring change in your life. Maybe this is a moment to draw him back in again today. Let me pray. Jesus, sometimes it's easier to think of you as a distant, benevolent friend Sometimes it's easier to think of you as someone who gives us good advice as we try to have authority and rule and master our own lives. But thank God that's not who you are. Because Lord, what we need more, we need something more than just good advice. We need something more than just cultural Christianity. We, mean, we need more than just good words or songs on a Sunday. Jesus, we need you to speak to the very depths of our being and bring life where there is brokenness. Jesus, there are world systems that are caught in chaos that we need you to speak the word of peace unto that they will calm down and be still. Lord, we have families that are struggling to make ends meet. Lord, many of us, like the paralytic, were caught going in the same cycle over and over again. We're paralyzed because of our sin and our decisions that hold us back. Jesus, 
We need more than good advice. We need someone who has the authority to come in and change things. I pray that for today, for each of us, that we would open up to you and that you would begin to minister life and bring change to the places that need it most. In your name I pray. Amen.